Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Part of the pot of the concealedcarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners. We tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and cops. Give you both angles of discussion. Uh, today I'm joined by Jacob Paulson, and he's gonna interview me today on my podcast. The title of our podcast today is Three Things You Couldn't Say When You Were Still a Cop. For those of you that didn't know, it's been a long time in the working, but uh, I officially retired May 31st, and uh, <laughs> i got to admit, I kind of like it. So this is episode number 101, and uh, let's get a little word in from our sponsors. Uh, as always, EDC Belt Company, the foundation belt, every episode because, well... Yeah, I'm part of that company. Also, Mantis X. Uh, if you're not familiar with Mantis products, you need to get a hold of a Mantis dry practice trainer. Uh, they've got an app. It allows you to like see your shots in real time. Uh, I've played with one. My business partners got one, and we. Uh, it is it is a very powerful tool, and once you harness all the the uh, training programs and all that. And uh, there's really just no limit to the possibility. And you can also use it during live fire as well. So, you know, if you're having some weird uh, questionable anomaly and you don't know what's going on, uh, the software and the man of will figure it out for you. So check it out. As always, links are in the show notes. And one final last thought, the guardian conference is coming up. It's right around the corner in uh edmond oklahoma or at the oklahoma city gun club i know that sounds weird but that's where it's at this will be the third iteration of that and we've got some great instructors wayne dobbs myself eric gelhouse riley bowman as always um and a couple of other new faces this year i think mick shook's coming back uh but should be a great conference and and right now we're down to the wire you got to pick it up. If you're going to go, you got to go now. It's September 17th, 18th, 19th. All right, let's bring in our guest. And we're here with Jacob Paulson. He's back after, uh, you know, a, a brief hiatus and uh, a number of controversial episodes ago. So <laughs> I don't know what I did that was controversial. Maybe you're referring to other episodes. Yeah, there were other episodes that were very controversial at times. Mm. And then, uh, but here we are. You hadn't been on in a while. So yeah, yeah. I, well, I'm excited because I got I've been holding on to some questions for you that that I felt like you were previously handcuffed uh, and unable to to respond with full honesty. There there were some times I had to dodge. I had to pay, you know, had to work on my bobbing and weaving. Uh, <laughs> but you're a free man now. Yeah, free agent, I like to say. Uh, you know, we could go Merc at any time. Somebody's paying the right <laughs> amount of money. Uh, no. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I prefaced it this way. We were, you and I were hanging out at SHOT Show, and I said, listen, bro, once you retire, like, I need to understand what are the things you could do that would cause you to lose your retirement? Because in my head, I was like, I got to, you know, I just want to make sure I don't, like, I don't want to do something that gets you really screwed over. And and I think what you said to me was commit a felony. Yeah, I was already vested at that point. I was like, I'm just, the more days that I'm on the pension, like, paying in, like, like at this point, I'm just bolstering my monthly pay. It's like, 
if I'm, if I've, there's a certain point you hit where it's like, I told somebody, I said, I had three bad days in a row and I was injured. So I decided to take some time off pretty severe. Yeah. Hit. There was surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I luckily, I didn't, I got a round surgery. Um, mm-hmm. I did a couple of injections and some pretty intense physical therapy and I'm about 85% now. Plus I had what I like to call a green mile incident, but we won't get into that. It was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the point is you can, you can, you can say whatever you want to say now. Yeah. Within reason. I mean, I don't, I, there are still a lot of friends of mine that are in the profession and I, you know, I'd never poo poo them or anything like that. But sure. I think as a generation right now with cops, a lot of us that maybe woke up a little later in the career. Uh, I think that's kind of passing. I think these kids are waking up to the realities a lot sooner than I spent like 12 years in blissful ignorance of, yeah, I just go to work and I do my thing and I put bad guys in cages and everything's a happy meal. Mm-hmm. And when you start to really see behind the scenes, it's like, no, <laughs> no, this is a monster. And when the monster decides your time is up, that will do everything it can to devour you. Um, right, wrong, or indifferent. So, well, there's no, there's no industry that's safe from change. No. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do for work, whoever's listening to this, whatever it is you do, whatever kind of profession you are in or have been in, you ain't doing it the same as the people who did it 30 years ago and the people 20 years from now doing it, ain't going to do it how you did it. No. And that's um, the, the big difference with law enforcement is there is some core fundamental things, right? And the main thing is you're just there to bring order to chaos. The only thing that's really changed is the tools and techniques you use to get there. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. But that's that's kind of the underlying fundamental mission, right? Just things are chaotic. Bring order yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the the question that I have, and I, I I laid this on your doorstep a while ago, so you could be pondering on it and be ready for it. And so today is the day Ooh. where I get the answer to the question. I want to know three things you couldn't tell me when you were a cop that you now can tell me. Okay. Which you want me to start at like the most controversial one or we can go whatever order you want. I'm just stoked. Like these are, these are the secret (laughs) things, man. These are the golden nuggets. So uh, the first one I came up with is body cameras and artificial intelligence are right now invading your privacy all the time. Um, okay. So that, I mean, body cameras seems obvious, right? Like my initial reaction when you say that is like, okay, well, there's a bunch of cops walking around all the time. Their body cameras are like recording presumably all the time. I don't know. And so my initial reaction is like, is that, is that the level of invasion of privacy we're talking about? Or is it more specific than that? It's way worse than people have any idea about. I won't mention any of the manufacturers, but, uh, but with the artificial intelligence, it is crafting speech patterns to individual persons, facial recognition. So even when my camera is not courting, right, it's constantly scanning and it is scanning every person. When that thing is on every person's face, every car tag, every address, GPS location that, that you as an officer are at. Yeah. The AI component of that is frightening. 
so what what action is it taking presumably it's coming and saying oh by the way you just walked past a car with stolen plates or something well it sounds really innocuous like oh that would be a good thing well the government regulates how long a police department can store data and Mm. for what uh what category of data they can store right like your personal information if i just if I write down a card and it says, you know, Jacob been on this date and I was here and I logged that in, it can only stay in our system for a finite amount of time before mm-hmm. it's required to be purged. Well, all of this like tag data, facial recognition, speech, there's, I've not been able to get an answer, but it's all provided by secondary vendors and a cloud source. So that's <laughs> where it, because the government can't, maintain this information but the government's workaround is well i contract with this company i don't know what they do with the data does that make sense that's scary so a third party is both archiving the raw data as well as providing the analyzation um and the you know purported insights or analysis of that data um and we don't know what you know and, and presumably part of their contract is some sort of privacy regulation, but who are we trusting to, to a decide what goes in the contract and B who's actually compliant. And I don't know what they're doing with it. I don't know if there's a purge time for it, uh, but the bottom line is it's happening. And yeah. the AI technology that they are pushing into that camera system is just frightening. Sure. Um, well, and like you said, it's like most most all, all these kinds of things that would be on this mm-hmm. list of controversial have legitimate police policing value right um and application the the challenge is you know who's regulating it to prevent abuse uh, or to prevent the invasion of privacy beyond what would be practical or necessary to to complete the police objective yeah and i went to uh, a briefing one time uh, with the National Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism. It's uh, one of the local nonprofits here that's run out of the uh, Murrah building, the bombing mm, memorial. Sure. They actually have a think tank there. And they were talking about intelligence gathering. And one of the things that the presenter said was, you know, intelligence has to be inefficient. It has to be. Because if it's not inefficient and there's no hurdles for an officer or an inf- a government person to go through, then we end up in Germany, 1933, where we have the perfect intelligence system. And I went, oh, man, and they're like, my got goosebumps. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. And it started to make me kind of understand why the Fourth Amendment exists, like the right of you to be secure in your persons mm-hmm. and uh, right like search the seizures and there you the go yeah. yeah because if that was not there not present oh man like we have nothing and i agree there is no nefarious intent on the surface like no this is this is good stuff this is i mean and, and we're scratching the surface in some regards mm-hmm. because uh, you, you picked one example out of many you could have chosen right um, but I, I think it's important for people listening to this to understand that we want policing to be good. We want, we want to put tools into the hands of the good guys to go stop and catch the bad guys. Like that, that is a good objective. And we're all, we're all in favor of that. 
we have to regulate it in a way that ensures it doesn't you know infringe on constitutional rights and and not only do we have to regulate the departments but we also have to hold those third-party contracted companies responsible because mm-hmm. uh, they also have to follow the constitution uh, they're just get less oversight unfortunately yeah one would think and and you know that's a microcosm of things that are going on and i'm not uh and i agree you know i want policing to be good but i also at the same time uh i kind of look at it like it's a lot like the hunting world and i know this sounds terrible but you know if the game doesn't have the benefit of the doubt then you're ju- you're not hunting you're just killing right mm-hmm. yeah that's so right. and i kind of and on the people side if the criminal doesn't have the benefit of the doubt you're not policing you're you're not you're you're not harnessing your skills, abilities, know-how, and your working knowledge of the law, you're essentially just a retriever at that point. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. No, that's not the – certainly it shouldn't be the intent. But we have to catch ourselves all the time, right? Because like, um, I, I love what you said about you know, you don't, you're not suggesting there's any nefarious intent. Right. But all of us, you know, we can look at our own lives and – look at decisions we've made where we weren't, we didn't have bad intent, but sometimes we put ourselves in bad situations because we didn't understand the consequences of our own decisions. And right. so we have to, we have to, we have to hold ourselves accountable, right? Just like we have to hold our governments accountable. Yeah. And that's the other problem is that you have a populace that is mostly apathetic to whatever, you know, you're doing. All right. That, that was Jacob inserting one. Let's, uh, let's <laughs> move on to number two. So this one uh, is for the coppers uh, that are uh, haven't had the conversation with themselves that I am not trained to the level that I need to be to survive this profession. And that because if you do a simple cost analysis, it costs an agency more to train you than it does to pay out on a lawsuit on your behalf or bury you. It costs them more dollars and more manpower time to train you than it does to settle a suit or bury you. And when you have that like stark realization, and I hope people listening do, it should drive you to go seek training or start demanding it from your agency. So there's, I'm going to have several follow-up questions, but yeah. let me just kind of emphasize the point a little bit. We got to understand that bean counters do know this, right? Like, like you didn't discover this. No. Like, it's not like Brian's brought this up one day and everyone's like, what? Like they're the people who are running the budgets, they're perfectly aware of allocation of funds and what they have to do to balance the budget or decrease the budget. Cause there's people at city mm-hmm. hall who want this or that. And so they're they're very clear on those things. Like you know, they may not like it. I'm not saying that they make decisions based on that data. In fact, generally, bean counters are not decision makers. They're just providers of information. Um, I'm just pointing out that this is this is not um, this is not an unknown thing. Like the right. department is aware. The department knows this. The the people who make the decisions, they know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that's part of the frightening aspect of this. Is that uh, you know when when we look at the cost of acquiring 
the officer and the cost of, you know, managing, you know, I have X dollars to put toward that officer and, you know, getting that person trained up so they don't do dumb things and or don't die on the job um, is is more expensive than just letting them go out there with some minimum standard that, that, that checks some boxes. Um, and, and should they be in a lawsuit, that's okay. That's cheaper than, than me having to, you know, train them or should they die and I got to pay out some benefits that's cheaper than what I would have spent to make them good at their job, really good at their job. That's terrifying. And I'll add that, that, (laughs) and this is the funny part to me as an outsider, I've never worked for a government department, agency, municipality in my life. It's never happened. I've always worked for private entities, right? Mm -hmm. Or corporations or whatever you want to call them. And so Generally, when you work for a business, for a company, for a person, small business, big business, whatever, you know, publicly traded, private, the business has a massive incentive to put out a good quality product. Because if they don't put out a good quality product, their competitors will eat them alive and they'll lose customers and they'll go out of business. Mm-hmm. Right. But in law enforcement, there's no like I don't know what the incentive is to put out a quality product. But I mean. Is there an incentive if, if it's cheaper financially for me to deal with the fallout of a bad product than it is for me to put out a good product? If I'm thinking about the officer in terms mm-hmm. of a product. Yeah. Okay. Then like what, then what, is there any other incentive for me to put out a good product? There's, I don't have competition. I'm not worried that they're going to shut down my department and a competitor is going to move in. Some places that has happened. Um, <laughs> You know, where a county is, yeah, Yeah. where a county's gone. All right, shut the PD down, take it off your books. We'll take over your patrol. And if that's that's a scary thought, Uh, but there's also um, the ROI on it is very hard to quantify. The reason that bean counters like tickets, they like people to write tickets, they like cops to write tickets. It's because that's a quantifiable, measurable product that they can look at. Because it's a clean metric. It's a clean metric. And it's about the only one they really care about, honestly, um, when it comes to... Because everything else is an expense. It goes in the expense column. If I arrest Jacob for some nefarious crime, I now am responsible for your clothes, your food, your time, making sure you get to court. So it's a cost. It's a time and, and money suck. If I write you a ticket and send you on your way, you send a check. So that is one of the big metrics they push. And they will say, oh, well, they'll they'll put it under the guise of traffic safety and whatever. It's, it's, it's a crock. It's just the most easily measured metric that we have. You cannot put a price tag on me backing my car into a convenience store at 2 a.m. and preventing the clerk from getting shot in the noodle by some armed robber. You can't quantify that. You can't quantify the number of times you've been getting gas and somebody was going to rob you that I pulled in because I just needed a cup of coffee, right? You can't put a value on that. You can't put a quantifiable metric on that. You, You can't distill that down to a statistic. 
But what you can well, you, do, but you, but you try. You right? try. I mean, I mean, there are law enforcement agencies presumably have a bunch of performance key performance indicators. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've heard Daryl talk about them here on your show, um, but they're just not very clean, I would presume, compared to writing a citation. Writing a citation, at, and I'll say it because I, I worked for administrators. That's all they cared about. And uh, for those of you that I worked for, that's, uh, that's all you cared about. You were a horrible administrator, and I'm glad I don't have to work for you anymore because there are 7,000 other metrics we can look at. You know, we can, we can go, hey, our presence alone in this area dropped the number of calls for service by 30% in this window. Why? Mm, you know, calls per service. Here's mm-hmm. the problem. You don't have administrators that are willing to go and look at that. And you don't have analysts that understand that they want. How many crimes did we have in this block by this race or this age group? What types of crimes did that's all they understand. Um, They don't understand that. Hey, you know, this cop that's been in this district, this beat for 17 years that writes one ticket every other month. Uh, from the hours that he is in service, there are almost no calls for service in that area. Whereas if you're an administrator, you look at that and go, well, that's an inefficient use of manpower because he's not really doing anything. It's not generating revenue. He's not generating revenue. He's not responding to calls for service. And I go, that is the utmost mark of success because if he's doing all of those things, you haven't suppressed crime. You haven't been able to make a measurable improvement in the people in that area's lives. Whereas if the whole police department is out there and the entire fleet is setting and nothing is going on, that is like an overwhelming success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. But it's also, it's not a clear enough metric. Yeah. Look at how much money we're paying to do nothing. Right. Yeah, like I totally sure. understand that side of it too. Yeah, well, that's that's why it's it's hard. But but uh, my sense is that policing is probably not as good. Like I'm a marketer, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have to. Uh, my data has got to be super clean. I got to know that when I run this ad, uh, this video ad versus that video ad, that my convert, you know, that my click through uh, is up thirteen point eight percent, but my conversion rate is down two point four percent. And so that net means that my ROI is right. Like that's that's how I run. I had to run in my, in my business, but in policing, I suspect that that's really hard. Like, well, let's test it this, you know, tomorrow by, instead of having 18 dudes on the street in this zone, let's have 14 and see like the, the data is not as clean because we don't have as predictable uh, of numbers or we'd have to do it over a larger period of time in order to have cleaner uh, or more reliable data. And and I suspect that that's not what departments are engaged in doing. I could be wrong. No. no and, and I don't, th- I don't think they pull from the right data sets, um, I had a very dear friend of mine who retired from the police department. He later went to uh, oversee the dispatch in 911 center. And he pulled up a spreadsheet in every, every hour, every minute of every hour of every day and mapped out the call volume by zone, by type, by priority, and he was able to shape his staffing numbers off of about two to three years of data to efficiently staff just based on those metrics. And I went, wow, that's a lot of data. And he goes, yeah, but you know what? I was the only one that ever harmed. I was the only one that went to look for it there. You know, mm-hmm. everybody else just said, we have a staffing issue. 
I'm like, no, we don't have a staffing issue. We have an efficiency issue. And here's how we'll work the problem. Uh, so I look at that and I go, well, you have data for every minute of every hour of every day for 365 days dating back how long. And if you throw out the anomalies, and I, what I mean by anomalies is, oh, there was a head-on collision right here and you know 20 people died. Sure. That's an anomaly. That's not a norm, right? It's an outlier. Uh, you can pretty well efficiently streamline things, but... By doing so, you kind of cut the face off the bureaucracy, too. Because if you're an administrator, what's your ultimate goal is to take on more people, right, under your banner, under your sector. So the more people you effectively manage, the more valuable. Prestige and money. Yeah. Yes. So nobody wants to go, hey, 20% of my force does nothing. Get rid of those. Like, take those off of my books, right? Because yeah. then, well, you just downplayed your your uh, your value to the corporation, essentially. So yeah, so we're gonna come back. We got off cool. track. Because yeah, I thought sorry. This was fascinating, but <laughs> no, no, it's, it's me. I'm leading. I'm on the interviewer here. So we're gonna come back to the training thing. So I think, I guess, uh, I'm not a I'm not a cop. Never been a cop, but I would presume that there's certainly a public perception that cops don't get paid a ton. And so I would also assume my perception is that an officer uh, is inclined to believe that uh, if they're going to get more training, that the department should be paying for it. We're hearing from you that there's a financial disincentive basically to do that. So what is the officer to do? Is the officer just, you know, gut down and say, well, I guess I better go pay for it or I got to go ask my department or beg for it or ask for it. Or, and what does that look like? Start at the department and ask because if nothing else, the more you ask when that comes up in a lawsuit later, the more times you'll have been, hey, man, I requested this training. I requested this over and over and got turned away when something goes wrong later on. Uh, the second thing I would tell you is do whatever it is you need to do. And I don't mean like steal money or do something, but, oh, sure, you, sure. you know. Uh, within reason, there's lots of good charitable outlets out there. There's lots of good training networks where I can't tell you the number of times I've been to a class and or I've taught a class and somebody says, hey, I'm not going to make it. Will you pick a cop that maybe would do this? I'll give you my ammo and, and just put somebody through your, your training. But you got to look for it. And then sometimes you got to go into your wallet and you got to say, is my life more important than going to a fancy restaurant next month or whatever? Um, is my ability to provide for my family, uh, is it going to be negatively impacted by me getting better at this skill set? The answer is no, right? However, a lot of guys, man, they come out off of that initial academy training and they're like, I'm the best trained cop in the world. And five years later, they don't know. They don't know come here from Sikkim, right? Like, and I think like the agency I worked for had a pretty good academy indoctrination program. The sustainment of skills stopped at the door when you left. That's it. It was like, okay, now you're on your own. They do it with cars and they do it with fighting, but with firearms specifically, ooh, that's bad. It's expensive. You know, people get hurt doing that. I have two follow-up questions to yeah. that. 
The first one is uh, on the civilian side in the firearm industry, like the evolution that we've seen to accommodate for economic challenges is dry fire. Like the you know, dry fire is the new religion in the civilian firearm training community. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's preaching it. Everyone believes in it. Everyone, you know, the 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 number, the amount of gear and products that are available to uh, help it, make it be better, make it be more efficient, make it be more safe, is exploding. Um, is law enforcement embracing dry fire as a low cost solution? I think they talk about it a lot, but I will tell you, it in twenty years. Plus, actually, like closer to 21 years, I was the weird guy because I would, you know, on a Sunday, I might go to the station, go to the clearing barrel, clear all my ammo out. And, you know, we we always had a ballistic wall somewhere, right? Like something was ballistically impervious and I might hang a B8 or something up there and dry practice for 10 or 15 minutes in the, in the break room. People would be like, why are you doing that? I'm like, because I might have to use this skill in the next 30 minutes. Your last most recent training is what you're going to default to. Uh, and, and I dry, dry practiced a lot. But, I mean, you have people that they come out of an academy institutional program. They've been told to dry practice, but they really don't understand what that is or what it's supposed to look like. That makes sense. Like mm-hmm. they don't so, even know what to me. They don't know what to, to me. It know. sounds like there's opportunity, right? Like both uh, institutionally, but also individually, right? So if I was listening to this podcast and I was an officer on the beat, I'd be thinking to myself, okay, well, I, I'm going to go ask. I'm going to go ask. I'm going to go ask. Um, I'm going to probably get specific. I'm going to try and say, well, the whole department needs it. And then I'm going to say, well, at very least, let me do it. And then I'm going to say, well, at very least, pay for my ammo if I go do it. But I'm I'm also probably going to say, well. You know what I can do that's not going to kill my family budget? I can do a whole lot of dry fire. Uh, I can, you know, figure out a way to do it so that I don't end up, you know, a news headline tomorrow. uh, Off-duty officer, you know, gun goes off in his home. So I'm going to, you know, nail down those issues. I'm going to find out what the best practices are. And I'm going to go build some skill for nothing. For cheap in my basement. That would be the first thing that I'd be thinking right now if I was listening to this and I was a cop. Um, and if I was an administrator and listening to this right now, I'd be thinking, well, dang, <laughs> like, sounds like, you know, ammo is expensive. Our budgets are worse than ever. The you know the public hates us more than ever. Maybe we need to be working some dry fire into our training program because that costs a squat. Yeah. Uh, well, I shouldn't say squat. It's going to cost things, but it's it's going to be relatively affordable. Right. And we're going to we're also not only is it affordable, we're also giving the officers a tool they can take home and do on their own without any supervision at all. I want to throw a, a big plus to uh, uh, Robbie Vedez from uh, uh, Customs and Border Protection. He that dude, number one, he's like the most decorated like uh, competition shooter in police history with the NPSCs. Won it more times than anybody. Won more categories than anybody. More times than anybody. He is a phenom, uh, and, and I've known him for years and years. We've talked off and on, and. He has developed a dry practice program involving a cert pistol. Uh, the problem, and I looked at it and I was like, this is brilliant. And we could put this in every police station. Um, and, and one of the things he said was, you know, we get guys that go, Man, I don't have time to go to the range on my time off or whatever. Yeah, we don't get enough time to go to the range. I can put you in a building, lock your duty pistol 
in a in a a locker, put a piece of glint tape on a qualification target or a humanoid silhouette and have it compatible with your holster and when you make a hit, you get a starburst from the little glint tape with the cert pistol. And he goes, and I can put you one-on-one with a firearms instructor for 10, 15 minutes, once a week, you know, but after the briefing five, 10 minutes before you go get in your police car, you get a, you get a marksmanship tune up. And I started bringing this like, Hey, this is something we ought to look at. Uh, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, I, I get it. Like I'm doing cost analysis on it. And I'm like, you could do that for a thousand man agency for under 10 grand. What do we save in the long run from our ROI? Oh, well, massive. Well, if we're mining the data correctly, we go, well, we've got our gun handling and manipulations up. So we're not having accidental negligent discharges. We have people not pointing guns at the public when they shouldn't. We have better qualities of officer involved shootings, lower round counts, higher rounds on bad guy. And we have higher qualification scores, which in turn says, oh, we don't have to manage as much ammo remediating you. We can train you now with ammo. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Well, getting that even past the initial conversation, I had people that were in places that should have known saying, what's a cert pistol? Like you have five of them down there. You don't know what those are. Oh, them red things? I'm like, jeez. And then you work for an agency like mine that has one of the most liberal firearms policies on the in law enforcement. And this is this is definitely me knocking my old agency. Pick a freaking fleet gun. Pick a gun and make everybody carry that gun when they're in a uniform. There's we're in a heyday with modern service pistols. Pick one. It's it's comical, really, when I look at the big grand scheme of it, but like take away some of those options in regiment training and sustainment. And watch your officer-involved shooting numbers drop. Watch your rounds on bad guy go up and your rounds fired and shootings go down. Other agencies have done it. You know, for yeah. the bulk of humanity, it's like, no, well, no, it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but those are good takeaways, right? I mean, I think that, you know, I, I don't have a lot of influence over these things. But uh, for those who are listening, if you're in law enforcement, no matter where you're at in the game, uh, whatever level you're in, like, there's a takeaway from this conversation that we just had yeah. for that, for you. And yeah. And as far as like the agency pay thing, okay, let's just say Jacob and I go to the Air Force Academy and we're, we're blessed off as F-16 pilots. When we're done, they're not going to go, hey, guys, you need some flight hours, so go buy a Cessna and some gas and go put in your flight hours, right? Consequently, there's fair, not very fair. many f-16 pilots in the world but but my point being uh if you look at the number of cops per capita in any given city not many of those either you know the expectation that you should you know not have any type of agency sustainment and that should fall all on the individual officer is just it's ludicrous but well i agree it's ludicrous but it's also to some degree the environment that we are in yes um, I mean, or very least what we could say is that the agency's perception of how much is necessary is so ridiculously poor that it creates an environment where to actually have a, a high standard of skill, the officer is on their own. Yeah. And that, that skill level needs to be defined and agencies don't define that very well. Well, you pass the state qualification. I, it, that's just a big frustration of mine. And I see 
people looking for good information and stumbling into bad information and not be having the discernment to know the difference. Um, you know, you got to be very careful in that, that world of where you get information. And, you know, we've handcuffed, pardon the pun cops from training for so long, they don't know any better and they don't know what questions to ask anymore. So, yeah, yeah. No, that's valid. Um, it's concerning. Yeah, I think I've said all I can say on the subject. <laughs> yeah, with, with, me too. You know, repeating myself and getting more more animated. So, okay, we had a third one. What's our, the third thing, Brian, that you couldn't tell me or you couldn't say out loud when you were a cop? This one befell me uh, under the tutelage of one Tom Givens. Mm. Most of your crime stats are completely padded and wrong. And it was staggering when I started, when I started to put that together, I was like, oh, and Tom breaks it down. I could never do it justice the way that he, um, the way that he presents that. Uh, but when you think of crime stats, where's one big source you go to? Oh, FBI. UCR, Uniform yeah. Crime Report, right? Sure. Only 51% of law enforcement agencies in the United States report to UCR a little, like 1% more than half. <laughs> so, yeah. I knew I was going to get you with one. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, really? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and obviously that doesn't mean it's half of crimes aren't reported because it would depend on which agencies are among the 51%, which agencies right. are among the 49%, but re- anyway, you shape it. It ain't okay. And it's far from accurate. And here's, Here's another thought on it. If you have a triple homicide, how does that get reported as three separate homicides to the UCR? No. Okay. If you have an armed robbery and there's 47 victims, is that one armed robbery or is it 47? The way it's reported, it's one. Now I guarantee everybody that got a gun shoved in their face still feels like they got robbed. But that stat now goes to one, one tick mark. And it might say multiple victims, tick mark. Sure, sure. Okay. So it's a single incident. Does that give you a realistic picture of how violent an incident is? Absolutely not. Um, here's one that hit close to home a few years ago. Um, under one of our previous administrations uh, that revamped the Uniform Crime Report. He was a very controversial president for eight years before Trump. That's all I'll say about that. Uh, I watched the new UCR reporting stuff get kicked out and attached to it was reporting systems. Hey, you know, I know your department can't afford to update its tech for reporting systems, but if you agree to take this and that's how they present it to the departments, right? Well, you give us the UCR data, but we'll give you this we'll give you a grant to buy this reporting software. Well, I start looking at the UCR codes and there is a complete demographic of people who are left off of it. At the same time, there was a high, high, high level of uh, incidents involving the border and crime at the border. All right. So what you're saying to remove the the cloud, the shroud, yeah. is you're saying that perhaps, perhaps 
in order to uh, achieve a higher uh, amount of compliance with the reporting requirements, as well as potentially maybe sort of shape the data into what they needed it to look like, they created a uniform, effectively, a uniform software reporting tool uh, that all the departments or a lot of departments were using. Yeah. And because they controlled the tool, they also controlled the way the data was recorded and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of it got rectified under the Trump administration. I mean, I watched like certain blocks on racial demographic come back. Uh, I watched certain like crime types get reinstituted. Um, But then again, I go, well, why was that done? Well, it's to fit someone's narrative. So I can take a piece of data and push it out as part of my narrative. So those crime reports are, they're pretty useless. Uh, They really are. And it's real shame. But at the same time, I think if people really understood how violent the society is that we live in, it would probably have some very, very detrimental effects. Um, and, and that's this is another one. I, I, I picked a lot of that up from Tom Givens uh, because even me, I'm 20-year cop when I go to his course. And I'm sitting in there and him telling us every stat on the UCR, you could basically times by two and a half. Like every single stat. He said, you could do that, and that would be a pretty conservative estimate on what the picture of violent crime actually looks like. And, I mean, my jaw dropped. And he's got stats to back it up with different different reporting organizations that he can go, yeah, if you say the crime rate is X, Y, and Z, just times that by two and a half, and yet that's a pretty conservative estimate. Like, no freaking way, man. Like, uh, but then as I started looking at my own career and things that, um, that I'd been involved in, uh, and I don't mean this like nefarious. I mean, just things that I, I firsthand was there, uh, when they changed our accident reporting system, right? They, they went all digital. Where'd the money for that come from? The feds, what kind of stuff were they tracking? Well, they added entire sections on semis and transportation methods and like over-the-road trucking data and all this other stuff that had never been in there before. Like, well, why are they doing that? Well, they want a stat to show somebody something for some reason, right? Mm-hmm. That That's the bottom line. Um, this it, may be my last up. show ever. There's <laughs> probably going to be on a watch list at this point. <laughs> Well, at the very least, you may get less uh, less visibility on Instagram. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you you bring up another good point, and and man, we could we could do this all day. So I'm not trying to drag this out, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. there is there is sort of this concern in my head about the dependency of a law enforcement agency on federal money. For one, I have huge concerns about federal spending. So that's already mm-hmm. a problem for me. Like we're, we spend so much more than we bring in. I, I, I find that highly immoral, um, not to mention problematic for those of us who have to fund the system, like all of us taxpaying you know, mm-hmm. humans. But uh, I also think that 
it, it, departments, I presume, I'm just guessing, you know, because I've seen Blue Bloods on NBC. <laughs> so I, I therefore am a highly informed consumer, um, you know, between that and CSI. So so I'm I, I have this sense, this perception of that that departments are highly reliant on money coming from the feds or from the state or you know from from external revenue sources that aren't from that municipality's you know bucket of cash mm-hmm. and and because of that because of that dependency that that makes them um you know anytime we're dependent on somebody else for money we become beholden to the, that person's desires like we mm-hmm. kind of have to do what they say we have to you know follow the Keep, follow the line, so to speak, because otherwise that money goes bye-bye and we all need that money to operate, you know, the system we've created, the business that we've created, right? right. And so that seems very concerning to me. Yeah, it's it's concerning to me and I've seen, I've seen examples of it for, you know, the two decades I was, I was there on the, in, in the hot seat. Yeah, we'd and, have to immediately do this or else we lose this money. Right. Uh, and where I saw it the biggest was invest replacement, body armor replacement. Because that's a massive expenditure and it's 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 a massive expenditure every five years. And that's not five years from the whole department. It's five years from when that guy got that vest. Five years from now, he's got to get another one. Five years from now, he's got... And then you stagger that out and every year you're replacing a percentage of a department's body armor or about 20% on average. Right. Yeah. One could comfortably say that's about 20% a year. Uh, just out of why, out of curiosity. I mean, what do you, what do you think a ballistic vest costs? Oh, geez. Yeah. So my, my perception on that, that, you know, cops is this soft armor or is this steel soft plates? Armor. Yeah. So I'm going to ballpark it at, you know, three fifty to 500 bucks a unit. Double that, and you'd be getting close to reliable body armor. <laughs> DOJ and IJ spec stuff that's actually wearable. I mean, you can get into that $300 range. We call those turtle vests because you're effective, about as effective as a turtle. You can't move in them. So when you get good quality soft armor with a carrier that has the ability to put in level, uh, level three plus plates or rifle rated plates, you're up twelve fifteen hundred bucks per officer. So that's $300 a year in, in just in armor. Well, you get an agency of a thousand. So 20% of them is what 200 you're talking a quarter of a million plus dollars a year, just in body armor right off the bottom line. Um, and where I live, uh, municipality, municipal police departments are funded through sales tax. Sometimes businesses close up. You know, sometimes sometimes the economy is not as good. Exactly. Um, so, so you know, everybody that reports revenue in a zip code, it goes to the state, and then the state doles that out to the municipalities, and it's um, it's pretty shocking. And you know, some municipalities, man, I, I got buddies that work in a small town not for, far from where the Guardian Conference goes their entire yearly operational budget is less than my former agency's gun range ammunition budget. That's, you know, and, and you've met several of their officers, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. not, they're not in any less danger than I was 
heck my no. my district surrounded their city like you know and, and when you say that's probably like the the picture of average law enforcement for the united states that's just a that's a good snapshot of it right there most of it's rural small no budget hoping that we have enough reserve officers to staff a shift and really hoping the feds show up with a check Maybe. Yeah. Some of them don't and they ward it off. Hence why 49% don't report to the UCR. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sometimes you take the money and sometimes they don't take the money. Yep. And federal grants, man, that's a dangerous game. I've seen more high level administrators get burned due to, to like grant reporting standards and stuff like that, especially smaller agencies, uh, you know, they get all that money, they get flush with cash, and they forget that you owe them something in return for that. It might be DUI checkpoints, it might be something, but you owe them. And if you don't meet on your end, they will take every dime of that back with interest. So, or they will go, well, you know, your freedom just isn't that important to us. Uh, this looks like you're <laughs> going to have to go set with the people that you uh, enforced the law on. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, Brian, this is, uh, I, I know that maybe for some listening, this might have felt like an, a, a negative conversation. Mm. And that was not your intent. That was no. not my intent. Um, but by nature of the question being asked, what are things that you could tell me when you're a cop? I think that we're going to naturally gravitate toward um, things that are concerning, things that we feel need some attention or that need some improvement. And so the intent here is not to, to cry a river by you or I. The intent here is to bring some things to the attention mm -hmm. of the listeners of this show, because a lot of listeners of the show, you have some influence on this, whether that's for you individually or that's uh, at a higher level or, or at a greater, greater level. Um, and, and all of us as members of the public who are being policed, uh, we have some degree of um, duty to understand what we're paying for. Because right. remember that law enforcement is a product and it's one that, as it were, taxpayers are paying for, right? I'm I'm purchasing that product. And so I expect it to to perform for me in a certain respect. And I don't I don't pay a lot of it, but I am paying some something for the policing that I receive. Yeah. And then if I sounded like I was negative towards my my past employer man, I had a great career. I had like, man, I had a lot of fun. There was a lot of ups. There was a lot of downs. Uh, but I got being the gun guy instructor, dude, I got a test bed every year of hundreds of students that I could go, oh, I'm going to try this new fangled instructor technique out. I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours that I would have never gotten if I was, you know, a self-employed quote unquote firearms instructor on the outside world. Now, I mean, I could, I could take the worst shooters on the department be like, Hey, come over here with me. I'm going to try out all the goody, right? Like, and I don't mean that as a knock on them, but you know, all the remedials, the habitual remedials. And my goal was to set them up to where I never saw them again. Like that's, that was my, my mission, you know, like I want this person to go out there and be confident and then I want them to come to the range and practice what I taught them so that they can, you know, they can aspire to that level of greatness. And I had people that I'd see a couple years in a row and then I wouldn't see them for five or six years. They'd come, mm -hmm. they, you know, they'd corner me up later and go, 
Hey man, you taught me this five years ago and I started practicing that. And now I shoot 99s, 100% on my quals and I've got confidence in my gun. I'm like, victory. Um, I never would have been afforded that opportunity if I hadn't have dealt with the other BS that is police work. Um, and it wasn't all bad BS. I mean, there was, sure. there was some great times, man. Uh, so yeah, if I seemed like I was negative, it's, it's not there. There were some, I had some frustration with the department, uh, and it wasn't directed at any one person. It was just, I think the more quote in like, I don't want to sound like I'm some super enlightened individual, but when you get around other agencies that are professionally in the way that they handle firearms training and sustainment training, and then you start to have the realization in your own agency that it's very lacking it's like, man, I, I want to do something. And you get stonewalled for eight or 10 years and you go, it's on you guys. I'm going to the house. Have a good, you know, it's nothing personal, but I'm tired of beating my head against the wall. So sure. Um, well, there's no, there's no perfect employer. There's no. no perfect employment. I get angry with my boss all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, he's always, he's always messing up my life. So that to- is what it is. Totally get it. Um, and then a lot of that, you know, just to recap, like the UCR stuff, I'm not the expert dude on it. Guys like Tom Givens, that dude, uh, Claude Warner, guys like that can break yeah, that. St- oh, yeah. Break that stuff down and make you just shudder to think of how fortunate you are to have gone through life without being a victim of violent crime. Um, so, yeah, nothing negative, just information, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, my man. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for letting me uh, kind of take the controls during today's episode and, and interview you on this on this topic. I've been really looking forward to it. Um, I think you shared some things that I think are very insightful, many of which are what I'll call actionable for the majority of us and certainly for those who are in law enforcement. Uh, so I think that we can learn from that and and we can all go do better at being prepared to defend ourselves and others over whom we have duty or stewardship. I think that's a wrap for me, Ryan. Right. Thanks, Jacob, for coming back. Uh, had a great podcast. Uh, <laughs> hopefully nobody's like completely scared out of their mind by any of that, but uh, stuff you need to be aware of. Um, you know, and have to march in the street or anything you can google a lot of this stuff and figure it out but uh a reminder if you haven't check out our sponsors today edc belt company and manisex if you haven't already please subscribe to the podcast on itunes google play spotify or wherever you like to listen to podcasts the off-duty on-duty podcast is a production of Eastridge training and consulting llc Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel 
when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.